Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We are continuing along in Out of Bondage into Abundance. We are coming toward the end of part six. This is a seven-part Bible study series, quite a lengthy study. And if you're just joining us or if you've missed parts of the study, all of the notes and previous recordings are available at our website, that's new-life-ministries.org. I would encourage you to go there and at least get the notes to follow along. And if you have missed any of the previous sessions, all of these are being recorded and they should have been excuse me, they should have been uploaded there by now. All right. Want to get right into it tonight. We are looking at seven nations that lived in the promised land that the Israelites needed to conquer, overcome, and drive out in order for them to take full possession of the land that God had promised them. And we've been looking at these seven nations as representing different forces of evil that we as Christians must overcome. God wants to bring us into an abundant life, and he fully equips us. He gives us exceeding great and precious promises concerning that abundant life. But he also is very clear in his word that when we choose to follow Christ, we not only become a disciple, we also become a soldier. And if you're like me, I've mentioned this before, Maybe you didn't sign up for battle, but whether we like it or not, we are in the middle of a fierce spiritual war. And that's why in Ephesians 6, Paul tells the Christians to put on the whole armor of God, and we're dealing with powers, principalities, rulers of darkness and evil in heavenly places. If you want to go to heaven, and I sure do, there are certain forces in heavenly places right now that must be defeated, pulled down, cast out, and replaced by God's covenant people, the church. And as we've seen, each one of these seven nations that Israel had to conquer, they represent something very specifically. And Surely this seventh and last nation, which we have deliberately kept for last for several reasons, which I will reiterate in a moment, this nation represents very clearly a class of enemies that we must overcome. This final enemy nation, the Jebusites, we saw their very name means trampled or trodden down. And we are taking this final nation to represent a spirit of discouragement or depression, a spirit that comes to literally throw us to the ground, tread us down, make us feel hopeless, useless, depressed, oppressed. And by no coincidence, this was the last of the seven nations to be overcome many, many years after 
the children of Israel entered into the land of Canaan. It was only during the reign of King David that the Jebusites were finally conquered and defeated. And the, the story becomes even more interesting when we realize where the Jebusites were living. They were living in the territory that we now know as Jerusalem. They were living in the stronghold of Zion. And David, in order to establish his kingdom, had to drive out the Jebusites and reclaim that territory for God and for Israel. And, of course, it became known from then on the city of David and the city of God, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the very center of all of God's kingdom on earth. One other detail we saw, when David went into Jerusalem to drive out the Jebusites, we hear their discouraging voice saying, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. David cannot get in here. And we saw that this spirit, it blinds us, it cripples us, and it basically renders us useless and helpless by virtue of its very nature, discouragement. And David, of course, was able to overcome that spirit. He overcame all of those discouraging voices saying, you will not, you cannot, and he defeated them. And that very stronghold, final stronghold of these seven enemy nations was broken, defeated, and David was finally able to establish the kingdom of Israel there in Jerusalem. Now, for you and for me, there's some really good news here. We've already seen repeatedly in the Old Testament, God does not want his people to be discouraged. Over and over he repeats himself, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And make sure that you get that into your heart and mind tonight. Whatever you're going through, God does not want you to be discouraged at any time. And I know we all feel discouraged sometimes. And this study is for all of us to learn how to stay encouraged in the Lord, learn how not to fall prey to this Jebusite spirit that comes to all of us. No one is exempt. No one is free from this thing. It will visit all of us at one time or another and say, you're no good, you can't, you will not, you'll never succeed, you're never going to make it, you're not gifted, you're not talented, you're not fruitful, you're not loved by God, and on and on it goes once you give an ear to this spirit of discouragement. What we are now doing is looking at how to overcome discouragement and depression. And recently I heard some numbers, I can't quote the exact numbers, but I know it was a very high number 
of people in the United States that are on some form of antidepressant medication. I'm sure it was more than one-fourth of all the adults in America are taking regularly some kind of prescription medication for depression. I think that's significant. And we need to pay close attention to God's word on this matter if we want to come out of the bondage of discouragement and depression and understand that God wants us to be encouraged. Now, we started going through a list of different steps or different means that God has provided for us to overcome this spirit. The first thing we looked at on page 137, if you're following in the notes, was to abound in hope. Hope is the opposite of discouragement and depression. And God gives us great reason to have hope in his word. He is the God of hope. His word, his promises, give us great hope. And we must meditate on God. We must meditate on his word and his promises if we're going to be a people of hope. And it's something that we must proactively do for ourselves. We're told in Ephesians 6 and also in 1 Thessalonians 5 to put on the helmet of salvation. That's to protect the mind, protect the head. No soldier would ever think of going to battle without a helmet on. No football player would ever take the field without a helmet on his head. How much more we Christians, if we understand we're going out into a battlefield, we must have on our helmet. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, we saw, tells us it's called the helmet of hope. The helmet of the hope of salvation. We must fill our mind with hopeful thoughts that come from the Word of God. We must memorize scriptures that speak to us about God's plan, God's purposes, who we are in Christ, and keep those in your mind. And if you can visualize it like a helmet protecting your mind, put on those scriptures every day. I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I will not be discouraged because God promised to never leave me nor forsake me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so these promises actually become a part of you protecting your mind from the darts of the enemy when he tries to come and say, oh, you're not going to make it. You're not going to amount to anything. You can't do anything for God. You're no good. You might as well quit throwing the towel and give up. No, I have hope. My God is a God of hope. And you begin to put on hope as a helmet. Second thing we began looking at, and here's where we want to pick it up tonight, the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem. And they were saying, you cannot get in here. 
Even the blind and lame can ward you off. And David took up that taunt or that challenge, and he began to say, whoever conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those blind and lame who are David's enemies. So he turned it around and called the Jebusites the blind and lame of Jerusalem. And he further said, the blind and lame will not enter my palace. So the the idea of being blinded spiritually or crippled, becoming blind or lame, we must overcome that blindness and that lameness that can render us useless, helpless, or unable to be a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And just as the earthly Jebusites were keeping the Israelites from coming into Jerusalem, the city of God, I'm convinced that there are discouraging spirits that try to keep us out of our inheritance. And we want to look very carefully tonight at the New Testament. Our inheritance is nothing less than the city of God. And this one is heavenly. There is a heavenly Jerusalem. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's the city of the living God. And this is where God has called us. This is our destiny. This is our inheritance. Furthermore, he's calling and equipping us to actually become that city of New Jerusalem. All right, let's begin on page 138, point number two. Set your face toward the heavenly Jerusalem. Have an eternal vision. Now, this is related to what we already looked at in step one. This is a part of our hope, but I want us to look specifically now at Jerusalem, because that's where the Jebusites were living. We read last time in Hebrews 11, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Israel, were told in Hebrews 11, they all lived in tents, and were told why they lived in tents. It says they were looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Obviously a reference to the heavenly city. There was no earthly city that they were looking forward to. They had a vision of the heavenly city of God. Now, in 2 Corinthians, we want to look at some scriptures in chapters 4 and 5, and I'm kind of doing this in a backwards manner. Let's begin in 2 Corinthians 5, and then we want to go back a little bit and look at some verses in chapter 4 just before these. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 7. Paul says, we know that if the earthly tent we live in, he's speaking metaphorically here about our body. Our body is our tent. It's not the real you or the real me. We live in that tent. The real you is your spirit and your soul that dwells in the tent of your body. 
If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, in other words, if we die, our physical body dies, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. This is the hope of resurrection. Death for the Christian is not the end of everything. In another place, Paul refers to it as falling asleep. So when the body dies, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. <clears throat> For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. So, basically what Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, and you've received God's Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in you is a deposit guaranteeing what is yet to come. Hope is always about what is yet to come, what is in the future. Well, what is yet to come is even when this body is dead, we die, the body's finished. He says, we have an eternal house in heaven. We look forward to even now, in these mortal frames, we're longing, we're groaning for that day when we put off this earthly tent and we're clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Note carefully those words, heavenly dwelling, or eternal house in heaven. There's a place in heaven that's being prepared for us right now. Jesus said that in John chapter 14. Don't, don't be troubled in your hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. I am going to prepare a place for you. There are many mansions in my Father's house, but I'm going to prepare a special dwelling for you, and I'm going to come back and take you there so that where I am, you will also be. That's hope. That's the hope that we have as Christians. Death is not the end of it all. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Even when we lose a friend or a loved one, of course we're sad. We cry. We, we grieve. We're going to miss them here on earth. But we don't grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. The unsaved, they have no hope after death. We have hope even beyond the grave. Now, 
back up a little bit to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. By the way, losing heart is another way of saying discouraged. Discouraged means you've lost your heart, you've lost your courage, you've lost that inner drive, motivation to press on. He says, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, he's talking about in the physical body, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, I can't emphasize enough tonight the importance of you and me having a heavenly, eternal vision. The Bible says, without a vision, people perish. And Christians today are perishing. They're falling prey to discouragement. They're throwing in the towel. They're quitting. They're dropping out of the race because they don't have a clear, heavenly vision. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And the church and the ministry has not done its job right if we've not prepared people with a heavenly vision. It's not all about feeling good, being strong and healthy and rich and prosperous and having a good life in this world. If, if you have all of that, great. But Paul didn't. He was beaten, persecuted, fasting, going through hunger, and all sorts of trials and tribulations. And he says, outwardly, we are wasting away. Our physical body is not getting better day by day. It's getting worse. It's wearing out. It's getting old. And whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter how much makeup you cake on how much hair dye you put in your hair, how many things you try to do to hold your body up and hold it together, we're getting older. We're wasting away little by little. And after 80, 90 years, if we make it that long, it's time to trade in the tent on a new model. This earthly will be traded in for the heavenly. And if you don't have a vision of that, it's very discouraging to look in the mirror morning after morning and realize, uh-oh, I got a new wrinkle, I got a new gray hair, or if you're in my boat, you don't have any hair. And you're looking at that image morning after morning and you're thinking, wow, I'm getting old. I'm not going to be around much longer. Or, like Paul, you can fix your eyes on what is unseen. Look beyond the mirror into God's mirror, the Word of God, and say, Hallelujah! Soon and very soon, 
I'm going to see my Savior face to face. Soon and very soon, this earthly tent will be put off, and I will be clothed with my heavenly dwelling. And whatever troubles, tribulations we're going through in this world, Paul refers to them as light and momentary. And they're achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, we set our face, we set our eyes, our vision on the heavenly, and specifically on the heavenly Jerusalem, because that's where the Jebusite spirit lives. It lives in Jerusalem, and it must be toppled and driven out if you and I are going to occupy the new Jerusalem. Now, let's really get into this. Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. The writer of Hebrews has just finished talking about how Israel in the Old Testament came to Mount Sinai. But he now is making a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant brought them to Mount Sinai. The New Covenant brings us to Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, 22-24, notice it begins with the comparative, but, but you, unlike the Israelites who came to Mount Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hallelujah. I feel the Holy Spirit tonight. I could preach about this scripture that we've just read. We've come. It doesn't say you're going to come. It doesn't say one day soon. We have come there. We've come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to myriads of angels. We've come to the church of the firstborn. We've come to God, the judge of all. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We don't have to keep hoping and wishing to come to Jesus or experience his presence. In Romans 10, Paul's, Paul says, the word is near you. It's already in your mouth. We don't have to climb up into heaven to try to pull it down or go down and dig it up. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. The word of faith. We've already come there. This is our destiny. The new Jerusalem. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. The last two chapters of the Bible speak about the glory of the new Jerusalem. God saved it for last, and he wants us to know that after the devil is defeated, thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, we know how the whole thing ends. The church is going to triumph, and this is the destiny 
of the church of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 21. I want to read quite a bit of scripture here, and I hope you read this often. And by the way, I'm going to tell you a little secret I've learned. Whenever you get down, whenever you're discouraged, whenever you're feeling kind of low, read the last two chapters of the Bible and just remind yourself, this is how the story ends. This is what awaits me if I remain faithful and true to the Lord Jesus Christ until the end. Revelation 21, verses 1 and onwards. Then I saw a new heaven. And by the way, the word then follows chapter 20, where what I just referred to takes place. Satan is cast into the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet are destroyed. The final great white throne judgment has taken place. All evil, all sin, all darkness has been dealt with. And now we come to the glorious, eternal kingdom of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Pause. Notice, it's not New York, New Washington, New Jersey, or New London. It's the new Jerusalem. There was an earthly Jerusalem corresponding to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, these are words that we would not normally be accustomed to using. We don't usually interchange city with bride, but God does, because, as we're about to see, the city is the bride and the bride is the city. They're used interchangeably. I saw the city, New Jerusalem, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This city, this dwelling place that John is about to see and describe for us, it's made out of people. Don't miss that. It's made out of people. God doesn't want to dwell in a temple made out of rocks and stones and pearls and gold. Those are just figurative words to help us understand the beauty and the glory of this place. This place is made out of people. The stones in this temple, as we find in 1 Peter 2, they're living stones, lively stones. These are people that God is fitting together to make his dwelling place. Let me read it again now. Look, God's dwelling place 
is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, that's why we need this vision. Because in our present experience, in our present body, this earthly tent, we do still feel pain, we do still shed tears, we do still feel crying and pain and, and all these things that are listed. But if you have a heavenly vision, you can keep reminding yourself, Hallelujah, a day is coming when there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things is going to completely pass away. And if you know your Bible, you know death and mourning and crying and pain were the result of man's sin in Genesis 3. Prior to the fall, we had none of these things. So now, all of the curse, all of the ill effects of Adam and Eve's sin have once and for all been dealt with. The atonement, the redemption is complete. The old order is passing away, and there will be eternal paradise. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain. Verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. Pause. If you're looking at the notes, those words are in bold print for a reason. This is what we're talking about. Israel had to conquer seven nations to inherit the promised land. We must conquer. We must be victorious if we're going to inherit everything that John is describing here. The New Jerusalem is for overcomers. Those who overcome will inherit all of this. I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, that whole group didn't overcome. They were not victorious. They, they succumbed to fear, unbelief, uncleanness, idolatry, lying, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Continuing from verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Very clear. Come, I'm going to show you something. 
What am I going to show you? The bride, the wife of the Lamb. Without any doubt or debate, this makes it crystal clear, Jesus is getting married. He has a bride. He will have a wife in eternity. Now, notice there's a very interesting transition that goes along with what we saw up in verse 2, where it seems to interchange the city and the bride. In verse 2, I saw the city, and it was like a bride prepared for her husband. Well, that continues here. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. I thought the angel promised he was going to show me the bride, the wife of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Exactly. What is the angel showing you, John? Well, he's showing me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We can put all this together. It's not rocket science. The bride is the city, and the city is the bride. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, is the bride of Christ. And, of course, this is after the rapture. The bride has been joined to her heavenly husband for all the rest of eternity. And God uses this metaphor for several reasons of the bride being the city. The bride is the dwelling place of Jesus Christ. Let me read verse 10 again. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, doesn't tell us which mountain, but it is obviously Mount Zion, which is the peak of Jerusalem, carried me away to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations. Uh, just pause for a minute. Remember, Hebrews eleven ten told us that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were looking for a city with foundations whose builder and architect is God. Here we see that. The city had foundations. And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. By the way, Ephesians 2 talks about the church becoming a temple, a holy habitation for God, and it also has 
foundations. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and together with that chief cornerstone, it's built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Verse 15 again. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. Even the rulers in, new, in the New Jerusalem are made out of gold. That's how you measure things there. Its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. Now, stop for a second. We have no idea what stadia are. You may have another translation that helps you. This is basically a cube. Its length, its width, and its height are all equal. It's approximately 1,500 miles long, high, and wide. Quite a bit of space, to say the least. He measured the city. Verse 17, Then the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits. A cubit is about one and a half feet. So you can do the math. This is a very thick wall. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Now, just a couple of things. We're not going to go into all of these details, but if you can get the big picture here, God right now is building this city. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a dwelling place. He's preparing that right now. He's actually preparing his bride. And she is responding by preparing herself because he will only marry a holy bride and it's a holy city it's a holy dwelling place all sin all evil anything that defiles must be cast out it will not be a part of this 
holy dwelling place, this holy bride that will be married to Jesus Christ for all eternity. We're told in Ephesians 5 about how Christ gave himself for the church to present her to himself as a bride, as a glorious church, radiant church, without spot, without wrinkle, without any defect. All of these scriptures are pointing to one and the same thing. We need to have a vision of this city and a revelation of the fact we're not just going to a glorious place, we're going to be the glorious place. He's giving us His glory. He's changing us from glory to glory into the very image and likeness of Christ. He's making us like Jesus so we can marry Him. And He's giving the very glory of God to the church. It's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. We are being given that very glory as we are preparing for the marriage of the Lamb. And so, all of these metaphors, gates, jewels, foundations, pearls, precious stones, transparent gold, they're all obviously speaking about spiritual realities, spiritual substance. We're accustomed to thinking that real substance must be something we can taste, touch, handle, weigh, photograph, see with our physical eyes. But the scriptures are very clear. There's another whole world that is even more real, the substance there, than the substance of this present world. That's why we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. The things of this world that we can see, weigh, taste, touch, feel, handle, they're all going to pass away. But what is unseen is eternal. And I like that word fix, fix our eyes on what is unseen. We have to have our gaze fixed on things above, not on things of this earth. We find in his final days, the scriptures tell us, Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Nothing would deter him from going to Jerusalem. We have to be the same way. We have to set our face, set our vision, set our whole purpose in life toward that one goal, the new Jerusalem. Colossians 3, Paul says, set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. So there must be a fixing, a setting of our gaze on that heavenly vision. <clears throat> That's why, coming back to Ephesians, it's in chapter 5, Paul writes to the Ephesians about the bride of Christ, 
and Jesus giving himself for her to prepare her as a glorious church and all of that. But in chapter 1, he first prayed for the Ephesians that God would open their eyes, not their physical eyes, open the eyes of their heart, give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know Christ better and to know the hope of their calling. You and I should pray that same prayer every day. God, open the eyes of our hearts. Give us a revelation of what it is that you've called us for, a calling that goes beyond this world, beyond this life. Help me to understand the hope of my calling so I can set my eyes on that calling. The stronghold of Zion and Jerusalem, it was the last stronghold of the Jebusites, and it's the very place that David wanted to establish his kingdom. It's the very place where he wanted to dwell. You and I should have that same spirit that David had. Nothing is going to keep me from the new Jerusalem. Nothing is going to blind me. Nothing is going to cripple me. Nothing is going to discourage me from running my race, crossing the finish line with joy, and hearing that voice say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your Lord. Enter in to your inheritance. Now, we're going to stop there this time. Next week, we're going to continue on and look at a third important detail. It was David, specifically David, who conquered the Jebusites. I believe that's also very significant, and we will try to tie that into our story. What does that mean for us as Christians now? How can that help us overcome this Jebusite spirit? And I'll give you a hint. The name David in Hebrew means love or loving. Only David could conquer the Jebusites. More about that next time. Let's close in prayer and pray for one another that we will have a a burning, blazing vision of the new Jerusalem and its glory and a revelation of the hope of our calling as Christians. Even if our body is wasting away, even if things aren't going that great for us down here on planet Earth right now, we can rejoice because we have a hope. Beyond the grave, beyond this life, soon and very soon, we shall see the King. We're going to look upon His face. We're going to walk on these streets of gold, streets of glory, and we will actually be a part of that glorious city, the new Jerusalem. God wants us to have hope. He wants us to be encouraged always as we look beyond this earth and fix our eyes on things above. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have brought us to Mount Zion. You've brought us 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've brought us to an understanding now of this calling upon our lives. You've called us to be the bride of Christ, to be that holy city, the heavenly new Jerusalem. God, let us be like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as we live in tents, looking forward to the city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. Lord, the, the city of God, the city of New Jerusalem, it's a glorious place. Your word says glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. <coughs> On the sides of the north, <coughs> the city of the great king. God, I pray that you would bless each and every one listening tonight with a spirit of encouragement, with a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us to run after this calling with our whole heart. Help us to shake off every discouragement, every depression, and to rejoice in and abound in the hope that you have given us. Lord, a hope not just for this life, but a hope beyond this life. We praise you and thank you for keeping us faithful and strong until the end, making us more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.